0: Hey there, I'm Gilad Barash, and welcome to Who's Your Data, the podcast that deals with how data influences life and how life influences data, the human side of data analytics. Hey there, and welcome to a new episode of Who's Your Data? Generative AI has already started to have major implications in regards to the content that we consume. And this is especially true in music. In today's episode, I chat with Ayal Golshani, VP of Data Science at Vivo, the world's leading music video network, to discuss how data and generative AI influence their work. We explore what their data science team uses data for. We talk about AI-generated content, the effect of emerging platforms such as TikTok, and what kind of bias they deal with and how they communicate data to promote stakeholder trust. We also think about AI's emerging place in the industry and what it may look like down the line. And lastly, Ayal shares with us what he looks for when hiring for data science roles. Let's get to the interview. Hey Eyal, thank you for coming on Who's Your Data podcast and welcome. Thank you. So can you start by telling us a little bit about your background and how long you've been doing data science in the entertainment industry? started
1: working quote-unquote data science proper over 10 years ago before that i actually used to work in the aerospace industry after working there for close to a decade i decided i wanted a bit of a sea change the big words at the time was wasn't data science was actually big data and i started looking into it and then i came across data science. And the more I read about data science, the realized I was already doing a big part of you know data science anyway. I did a master's of business, business analytics. And at the same time, also I started applying for data science jobs and then kind of moving into data science and actually entertainment was uh, simultaneously, we went, I found a, a job at uh, Sony PlayStation. As a senior data scientist, analyzing gameplay behavior at Sony PlayStation. And um, that's where I also fell in love in the um, the entertainment space, digital media.
0: Nice. So having worked in other domains as well, like aerospace, would you say there's anything unique about data science in the entertainment industry?
1: It's a personal answer, which is, for me, it was fun. I say it's personal because for some people it'd be like, just I need a job, but I typically find that if you look, if you go around my company and you see why people work there, you'll see people are ex-musicians or people have a really strong passion for for music. You will find that people who work in entertainment space has a very strong flair for entertainment and they do it because they're extremely passionate about it. And you might not see that in if you ever go into other fields.
0: So it seems to me when I think about data science in in any industry, and especially in an industry like this, what is interesting to me about data science in such an industry is around the data that's being collected, the algorithms and the things, the tasks, the mechanisms, and the goals of using data science. In this case, I assume that, that the data is collected and used for the following purposes that I think are rather common increasing subscription base, selling ads on the platform, maybe improving recommendation of the recommendation engine. Um, is there any other big use case that data is, is used for?
1: No, I think the the way I, my analogy that I keep in the back of my mind of how I think about the industry is a museum where you're showcasing a piece of art. And that piece of art in this case is a music video. And the job of the museum is to build an exhibit and parse the exhibit accordingly. And in essence, everything I do is in kind of service of that, of how can I service the exhibits the artist has built and package it in a way that's the most attractive. And then both from a uh, an exhibit people want to go and see, but also from an exhibit people want to go and pay good money to, to see. So.
0: And I would imagine you really try to personalize the exhibit to the museum visitor.
1: Sometimes you sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. Some of our channels that we showcase are information on our linear channels in nature. So it's TV broadcast.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So there is some level of personalization, but when you're doing full national coverage, there's only so much you can do. But even within that, there's some limited abilities to kind of do a personalization, the seasonal events that happen, East Coast versus West Coast, there's some some abilities to kind of uh, make it more personal.
0: In the past few years, there's been a lot more thinking about privacy and restrictions on data that is collected or that can be used. Um, anything from you know GDPR in Europe or CCPR in California that really restrict what you collect and require the users to opt in perhaps, and given the ability to opt out, has, have any of these data privacy policies and awareness affected the industry and your ability to collect and utilize data? Is there less data collected or more restrictions on what you can do with it?
1: I think one of the key AI people from Google said that the secret source is never in the algorithm, the secret source is in the data. So the more limits you have on your data, the less ability you have to be able to build models with increased accuracy. So, yeah, the the implication was we had to kind of build, find ways of building models with with less grain in mind. So things like dealing with aggregates, as an example. There's a good way and bad way of looking at it. kind of net downside way of looking at it is the increased accuracy. The plus side way of looking at it is it's more robust for the future. You have to be, if you build it in the right way, once those restrictions come into place, you, you're you well set up to to be able to continue working in a kind of a cookie-less environment.
0: Yeah, you bring up uh, an excellent point in terms of the uh, deprecation of the third-party cookie that Google has been threatening for years. I think it keeps getting moved You're right that building building the mechanisms now that will deal with it, even though cookies are still available, is going to make it more robust in the future. Just in general, a question about, in your opinion, I think one of the biggest issues with the transition from cookie-based to cookie-free, when there is no longer tracking on users through third-party cookies, is the issue of measurement. Of how today when you utilize cookies, you can then also track and follow and see whether, you know, the users click or go to a certain page and see if, if whether it's your ad was useful or the recommendation was useful, etc. But once they're deprecated and gone, you're not going to be able to follow them and see if what you did worked. You can,
1: you can, you just, uh, you, it just becomes a slightly different way of measuring things. You can deal with things like aggregates, less extent, but at least it's directional. directionally telling you whether you're moving in the right direction or not. There's things like switchback testing. Again, there's challenges there, but it can be done. The trade-off is really just accuracy versus privacy. Right. That's, what, that's the trade-off. I think as long as it's an even playing field and everybody's playing by the same rules, we're good. I think is uh, it just means that the everybody's in aggregate spending more time, more resources for increase, uh, decrease accuracy. And as long as everybody playing, but over the same level, it's, it's an even playing field.
0: So we're good. So to me, two of the biggest shifts in the entertainment industry and music in the past few years have been streaming and now AI generated content. So let's talk about AI generated content for a minute, whether it's deep fakes in videos or, uh, you know, AI generated music, like let's say, sh- Somebody creating a version of Drake uh, Drake songs being sung by Cher, which God only knows why somebody would do something like this. But I guess there are you know evil people in the world.
1: I think that we it's yet to be determined what's going to happen. So there's a couple of things to that question. First one is, will you be able to detect if somebody uses AI generated content in a video? Some of it is very obvious, like the share example you just provided. It's it's you know the artists, you know the you know that they wouldn't do something like this, and it just it seems off. But there's a more nefarious version of that, which is the ability to be able to to come up with lyrics that are in the spirit of a certain artist. So. You can put an artist who is extremely talented with writing lyrics, let's just say a cheering. If you can use the AI to generate con- content that are in the spirit of that artist, in essence you are taking away their intellectual property, the their gift is so to speak, and you're commoditize it. And that's the bit that's a bit more difficult and uh in nature to to kind of detect. You will probably see legislation come in to kind of trying to help to protect that jury is out on how effective that's going to be out and again it just remains to be seen but the best way i can kind of think of it is is looking at the past and look at what happened what was successful or wasn't uh, what wasn't successful in the past and the best example i can kind of think of is the napster and versus itunes versus youtube and what history it's shown that if you standardize and take advantage of it, i you can use it for free. You have a much better job than simply trying to play whack a mole and um, and trying to catch people out. Like I said, it's uh, it remains to be seen. We're kind of early days, so we don't really know how things are going to play out.
0: Yeah, so and, and this is a, a completely personal take. As far as generative AI is concerned and, and utilizing artists' data for training, I see in certain industries, certain companies that are that are content companies, for example, you know, stock photo companies that may use the photos that are in their possession to create AI generated photos. Um, And I think there are some companies that do this and some companies that have decided not to do this, but, and, and, you know, and there are copyright issues as far as utilizing this this artist content in order to train their models. Do you foresee any kind of scenario where, you know, entertainment companies, music companies, labels would use artists content to train LLMs to do something like you said, create a new genre or something like that? Or do you foresee that the use of AI in the industry would be around more, like you said, discovery and and figuring out what's fake and the traditional use cases that we mentioned before?
1: Again, this is a very personal take as opposed to any official government uh, company position. You can spend resources, and you you could probably do fine. There might be a way of actually detecting whether somebody made use of your intellectual property in doing it, but it's going to be extremely difficult, extremely laborious, time consuming, and again, you're playing whack-a-mole. How effective is it? Deeply skeptical. I whether companies do it. I don't think companies are going to be the one doing the stock music generation. No, I think that's that's too much liability in doing it i more mm-hmm. like individual creators who have nothing to lose they're starting from the bottom so any leg up they can do and it's just from a game theory perspective it's just a uh, no-brainer for them
0: yeah not
1: not that i'm endorsing it
0: no 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 of sorry. course this is all uh, a personal opinion one of the other things just again around content is is a question that i've always been interested in it seems that in recent years artists have been utilizing you know, new channels like TikTok. It almost seems like the point is to go viral rather than to have a traditional hit, you know, because that's what the kids are listening to. Do you, how do you feel about that in terms of maybe, you know, abstracting it, but saying new channels that come up like that, that are trendy, that are more immediate? How do you see that in terms of, first of all, your own personal opinion, but then anything around like the the data side of it?
1: I, I do a bit of art myself. So I do photography. The type of photography that I do tends to be for my own personal enjoyment, out of the the feeling to create something that essentially is a reflection of me and something that I want to be able to look back in ten years' time and still want to look at it. I fear that if you trying to create the photography I want to do in order to satisfy an algorithm will end up creating somebody, an art for somebody else that I have no emotional attachment to. And they might not actually necessarily stand the test of time. If I look at it in 10 years' time, I wouldn't even recognize it as being my work. So, I would say that's the same equivalent in music. of If you are making music, just make sure you do it for yourself and you don't get to a point where... You end up being sucked into creating work that, in order to satisfy an algorithm that uh, you end up uh, has essentially not creating something that it, uh, we look at the same way we look at v- uh, v- music videos and and music in general from the '60s, '70s, '80s, and '90s, and it's still you know evergreen and timeless.
0: Yeah, I think that's very a, a very profound statement. I mean, you're if you're doing it for the art, uh, you will have a lasting legacy. If you're doing it for the likes and the viral TikTok, then you'll make some money, but uh, then it'll the, be. It
1: in the name, viral.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things that interests me in general when I talk to anybody, any data people from any industries around the kinds of biases in the data that they have to deal with. And so I wonder for in your industry, what kind of biases do you deal with in that data and, and that you collect and how do you address it? And, and just as an example, you know, one of the things that working in ad tech that I found, one of my one of my favorite stories of uh, you know, people and it comes down to people also understanding what the data is and what's in it and what isn't in it. In ad tech, when we're using people's online behavioral digital signals, as far as what websites they visits, what apps they used, what geolocation they were at, that their phone registered. You know, that's the kind of data that you have. And so that's the kind of that, those are the kind of questions that you can ask in order to get meaningful answers. And remember that one client that we worked with wanted to target retirees in retirement villages that did not use smartphones or the internet. And, you know, we had to come back and say literally, there is no data that will support what you're asking. That's that's not even in our universe of data because you you really have to understand the data and what it can give you and what it doesn't and what it skews to. In our case, it skews to people that use the internet and use smartphones. Otherwise, they're not represented in the data. Do you have any kinds of biases that you deal with that you are that you think about when in the data that you collect?
1: I think the issues that Uh, I typically deal with are not all that different from other industries, which is you have a relatively small number of artists who made it to all the way to the top and you have essentially like a pyramid, I don't like using that word but it's just a, there's a whole layers of of artists beneath who hasn't made it and somewhere in between but it's those small group of artists who have made it to the top of the um, top of the game and top of the industry is uh, how do you balance between giving them the stage they deserve by you know being there but also giving some of the other artists the the opportunity to also break it in as well. Uh, particularly if you're studying all the way at the bottom and you're anonymous, you are struggling and you are struggling against an overwhelming number of other artists who are the same board as you. I look at it as uh, wanting to give those people the the fair shot from a perspective of programming channels or surfacing recommendation, it just they, um, it adds a bit more interest for people who are more experimental in nature. They like to listen to new new type of uh, or videos. They like to discover new uh, voices, but also there's the people who don't. The people who just want to listen to the big names. So it's about remembering there's, there's two type of uh, camps or spectrum. Mm-hmm. and being able to serve as both for them. So that's obviously has downstream implication on the algorithms and, and algorithm design and how we think about uh, modeling data, balancing, balancing sets, et cetera.
0: I think it's really interesting that you mentioned that and then you put it that way because I come across that and I think it's something that's that's universal in certainly in analytics and presenting data, You know, looking at predictive analytics. I always say that there is a balance between showing data that will reaffirm the clients, the the business stakeholders belief and confidence in the data, i.e. things that are intuitive to them and showing things that are new and non-intuitive and are surprising so that they actually get value out of the analysis. Because if you skew too much to one side, if you only show them things that they already know, it's boring, but if you show them new things too many new things that are unintuitive and that they don't necessarily believe or they think are surprising, then they have less confidence in the data and they're not sure that it really is working for them. So always finding that balance of showing enough to give them confidence in in the data and the process, but then enough new stuff to to actually be interesting and meaningful. The known artists are the
1: anchor, the, the familiar and the safe. Yeah. Whereas the... The new artists are the exploration and the excitement yep and really what you want to do is uh deep in and out of safety to explore. yes
0: yeah and i guess we you know it's it's an art to kind of feel certainly with you know clients that that you work with and it, it would be much harder for you to do it on a personal level but to really f- get a feel for the comfort level of the stakeholder of how much exploration they're willing to tolerate
1: it. Sure, it's different for different people. Depend how much you want to go into psychology. There's a lot of underlying reasons.
0: Yeah, and and I think that's what makes it so fascinating. Doing the data science part is just the beginning of it. Then communicating it uh, to the stakeholders is a whole other art. Speaking of communicating to stakeholders, you know, as a data strategist, one of the biggest challenges that I see is convincing. Business stakeholders to prioritize and trust the data-driven decision making as we made, as we as we mentioned, it's a whole art of communicating it so as to convince them. And so, speaking about the entertainment uh, industry in general, in your opinion, what has your experience been with stakeholder buy-in, and uh, you know what strategies do you, you use to present and convince people of, especially the exploration and the non-intuitive things?
1: My opinion on it has changed throughout the years. And uh, I'm trying to be looking at it a bit more holistically. Came to the conclusion, rightly or wrongly, that whether willing, pe- people are willing to be trust you and be more data-driven is directly related to how competitive the industry is. Mm. The more monopolistic uh, a, an industry is, the less likely or the less inclined or the less urgent it is to make use of analytics, analytical tool to make smarter decisions. With that in
0: mind, yeah, that's kind of, I'll leave it at that. That makes a lot of sense. If you're, the more monopolistic you are, the less incentive you have to try new things. Yes. Yeah.
1: Because you don't have to.
0: Because you absolutely don't have to. That's absolutely right. (laughs) In your opinion, in Skynet becoming self-aware and our machine overlords taking over... All of that notwithstanding, in your opinion, in the next few years, where do you see, whether it's generative AI or other methodologies, AI going in the industry in terms of its effect on your work?
1: I'm giving you a personal opinion where I think it's going to go. Yes. Um, I think it's going to become its own genre. I think it will commoditize uh, some element of songwriting. And if I'm correct in my initial assessment, I think it might end up impacting how artists actually license out the cre- the creative thought process. I think I'm I'm a really big believer that there's if you look hard enough, you'll find there's a lot of cyclical processes in life. Mm-hmm. Things going in a circle. There might be some element of people having to rediscover certain parts about what give them meaning in their life because AI starts automating a lot of that stuff that can push you into a cycle of uh, lost meaning, then it just be, it just means that you have to reinvent yourself like everything else in order to actually find some sort of meaning. What is that going to look like? I'm not sure, but I just think it's going to be a catalyst for, for the next cycle of innovation.
0: What I've heard and thought about that I thought makes a lot of sense is that, like you said, it's going to get so commoditized that at some point, the, the standard is going to be AI driven or AI generated, and it's going to be the manual, uh, handmade things that are going to be the luxury yeah. items, that it will be AI for the masses. And then if you want something made by humans, that's going to be something unique.
1: Yeah. And the only way to prove it, uh, it's unique by is by going back to analog principles. Yeah, paper, uh, like, you know, super basic stuff. I know there's a fact students, for example, have been uh, asked to write handwrite assignments because of Chat GPT, as an example. Yeah. Going back to my photography example, some of the most coveted cameras are uh, handmade cameras in Germany, you know, like us, as an example. It's the stuff that you end up discovering and rediscovering for the love of it, you know. Analog photography making a comeback with people going back to film. Yeah. It, that there's no there's no logical, technical reasons to do it other than it's fun and it's uh, it's for the soul.
0: But also I, I think that like you said, when you look at history, you see the creation of digital equipment, whether it's you know, loopers or 808 drums, also found a way to be part of a creative, of a human creative process that was unique to artists so it it may be a question of humans and how they harness the power of ai to do something unique that is still human driven Yeah. yeah okay so it's time for hot topics the one thing i want to ask you that is going on right now that has to do with creativity and AI is the writer's strike that's going on in Hollywood. And I know that you are in in a separate industry, but I think, you know, you have some proximity and I'd love to get your opinion on this, your personal opinion. But one of the issues that's going on right now with the writer strike in Hollywood, as it relates to technology, is that you know some of their demands are are first of all that there will not be AI involved in writing scripts. They don't want to be script doctors for AI-written scripts, where you know it'll write eighty percent of it, and then they just have to go in and humanize the rest of it. Um, among other things that they want, you know, minimum number of writers in a room and whatnot. But as it relates to The technology and how they're trying to prevent it from permeating the industry what are your thoughts about that in terms of you know this is creative people that are trying to kind of fend off the ai advancement
1: think about the conversation you and i had uh, a few minutes ago where we talked about uh, uh, generative ai for songwriting the trade-off where i just took a very cold kind of game theory perspective so to speak and said okay you can either play whack-a-mole or you can play intellectual property uh, licensing, sorry, as being your your kind of two options. You have to ask the question of if a company wants to make use of AI to write a generative script, firstly, what is the quality of that script? Is it going to be an Oscar-nominated script? Is it going to be... Uh, somewhere in the middle or kind of the uh, relatively low quality that you have to put a fair amount of work to kind of get it up to speed? If the answer is, if it's kind of really low quality stuff, do you really need to enforce a, law, a rule into place by union in order to protect it or whether you just let the free market sort itself out? And that's the, the been the debate for ages uh, throughout time of free market versus, versus uh, legislation. So it really just to answer that question typically comes down to where you sit on that spectrum, whether you're more of a market that would sort itself out versus protectionist rules in place. I tend to be a bit more free market in place because I tend to gravitate towards quality product. And if an AI writes a script and it's essentially really low quality and there's, there's nothing engaging about it, uh, for me, I would end up not watching that content, and if I don't watch the content, it doesn't get um, monetized. And if it doesn't get monetized, why would people keep using uh, AI-generated scripts to, to do it? Unless you see an increment over time where it's essentially surpassing any of any of uh, any any written work work you can think of. Ask yourself for who's making use of that tool, and and if they're willing to make use of that tool, if it's not successful then it's, there's not going to be issues to, to solve if, if they do make this uh, and it is successful. What does that actually tell you about the company?
0: I agree with that take. And I think that, you know, the, the, the jobs issue aside that maybe, you know, it will cost jobs, but ultimately in the, you know, for writers and, and whatnot, but ultimately in the long run in today's world where a lot of scripts are, you know, rehashes and, franchises and and would AI be able to write something along that line and and at that level maybe and and if it doesn't if it makes money then that says something and so the human element again like you said and like like we mentioned before mediocre scripts that exist today too but if writing mediocre scripts becomes commoditized by ai then okay Uh, now humans can can differentiate by writing the really good Oscar-nominated ones.
1: Going back to my... You know, I told you I did a master's of business analytics and one of the interesting concepts that was introduced there is the idea of technology being a constant disruptive force that uh, forces cycle after uh, cycle after cycle of innovation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And every new innovation that comes in disrupts the, the industry inevitably. You know, the car was introduced... As a way of dealing with horse manure and the sanitation and hygiene issues that, that was causing in, uh, in London, where people to have to add a handkerchief for their face because of the the smell was so overpowering. And then the car itself became a big pollutant to a point where we are now looking at the next cycle of solving that innovation. So, uh, solving that problem, sorry. Every new technology comes in, introduces a way of solving the old problem by introducing new ones until the next uh, solution comes into place, up until the game over, which is when you run out of intellectual ability to solve the problem with the chain problem we created. What you describe is a bigger issue than simply the writers. If you just zoom out for a second, if you're an accountant and all of a sudden the accounting can be uh, modernized using AI and get 99% of the work done, and then the accountant simply uh, ratify the work, What does that do to the accounting industry, the banking industry? You pick any industry that you can that that relies on a fairly large amount of fairly mechanized processes that you can kind of model uh, and modernize, they're going to come across the same issues. So it's not simply limited to
0: writers and the writer's story. The key is probably to find a way to, from the writers and from the creative people, from the accountants, from the bankers, how to harness the AI rather than be replaced by it. And that's what, as I always say when I'm asked, like AI isn't going to replace you, but somebody who knows how to use AI will.
1: But yeah, but that's that's the story of time of you know yes. It's the adapting to change, right?
0: Yes. And so speaking of adapting to change, and if you have as as If a data scientist, somebody who's new in the field is looking for that change and is interested in breaking into the entertainment analytics business, what would you recommend that they learn or pay attention to in terms of are there specific standard tech stacks or algorithms or methodologies that are common that they might want to familiarize themselves in order to break into the industry?
1: I've never been one to focus too much on for people are breaking into, as long as they do that kind of bachelor's or whatever masters, they seem to have pretty good technical skills. I think to me, a good data scientist, what I look for in the interview, those technical skills to me are kind of like table stakes and I tend to focus less on that. I tend to focus more on the creative element and the creative element typically materializes more on the, can they think like an economist? A good data scientist kind of thinks of modeling the problem in terms of incentives and what what are, what are the various incentives at play? What are the market forces in play? And um, and that's typically how I formulate my interview questions. And also, from a technical standpoint, I tend to also do something similar as a technical question as well. I ask a very, very simple, you can write it in two lines of code. Mm-hmm. And I've had people who write it in, in and solve that problem in two lines of, uh, of code and I've had people who struggle for 45 minutes and yet at the end that kind of had to, had to give up on a relatively straightforward simple problem. Be attentive, ask a lot of smart questions and think of incentives you know read about game theory, read about uh, books about economy, understand the industries the, the market forces at play. In the industry
0: i agree with what you're saying i think in, in any industry uh, what i found and what i look for in analysts because like you said the technical part can be taught but if you are able to connect it to the business side to understand how to communicate with stakeholders and understand them and answer their questions in the in the terms that they understand that is golden
1: whenever i present to young data scientists I always get asked the same questions of like What sort of package, Python package should I learn (laughs) this? And and I keep giving him the answers, whatever gets the job done. There is some level of standardization. So a company that wants to achieve economy of scale will kind of standardize to say, okay, you can only use the Python version, such and such. But for the most part, it's never the technical. And there's a paradox of technical people getting caught up on technical stuff because, ironically... It's because they're so competent that they they are almost also almost too self-conscious, and they feel like okay, I just need to do even more and more and more. And I said to them, no, you, your technical skills are already good enough. You got to work on your presentation skills. You got to work on your persuasion skills. You got to work on being able to easily translate a very complex problem into something that other people can can understand. And I my mentorship that I do for people who work for me is ninety-five percent of the time focused on people skills as opposed to uh, Python packages or whatever. Th- those are those are trivial things that, that most of them kind of know how to solve on their own. If not they're uh, surrounded by enough data scientists to be able to ask those questions right. and I, I don't really add any value there.
0: Right. And I was always the same. I was like there's there's uh Stack Overflow, now there's Chat GPT, like you can figure out how to write the, the code that you need to write. But to communicate the data in the right way to the right people, that's the trick. Yeah, thank you so, so much for this conversation. It's been fascinating. I've been wanting to talk to somebody in the music data industry for a long time, and uh, you answered a lot of my questions. My pleasure. Well, thanks for joining us today and listening to this episode. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. And If you have any questions you'd like addressed, send them to whosyourdatanow at gmail.com. That's now, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks and see you next time on Who's Your Data?